Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is Matt Zemek, uh, filling in for Sakov, who's been under the weather this week. Uh, and we have a special treat. You might recall a year ago, uh, Skip Schwartzman, who is uh, a contributor to Tennis with an Accent. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at TennisSkip1515, TennisSkip1515. Uh, you might recall that Skip uh, was on site at the ATP Finals in London at the 2018 event won by Alexander Zverev. So he wrote about it. Uh, he posted some photos on our, on our website. He chronicled that event for us. And so now at the end of another tennis season, 2019, uh, we have Skip again as our man on the scene. He attended the start of uh, the 2019 Davis Cup Finals. Now, I call him PK Cup, but we're going to officially recognize them as the 2019 Davis Cup Finals. And he did write a piece for us at Tennis with an Accent. Uh, Steve Tigner at, at uh, Tennis.com noticed it, uh, commented about it. Uh, but it, it was called uh, S. Well, it was really the Prince symbol or the event formerly known as Davis Cup. So Skip offered that short article, and he's going to continue to offer more commentary on this first-time iteration of the Davis Cup Finals, and he's going to talk about the scene in Madrid. So, Skip Schwartzman, welcome back to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Thanks a lot, Matt. Sorry to hear you're not feeling well, Sakib, but glad to be here with Matt. All right. So, um, you wrote about a little bit about the way Madrid uh, welcomed uh, Davis Cup. So, elaborate on you know the the sense of the scene in the city. Not so much La Calle Magica, but how the city itself uh, embraced the event, what the atmosphere was like, were people on the street talking about it, things like that. What what was your sense of how the city of Madrid welcomed this new Davis Cup? Um, sure. Um, I, I would say, first of all, if, if people on the street were talking about it, my Spanish is not good enough to recognize that. So I, I'll have to cast that little bit aside. I, I will say that per the, the, what I alluded to in that intro piece is that I was kind of taken aback by just how little um, commentary, or not commentary, how, how little advertising or marketing there is throughout the city. I was staying in the city center. Um, I covered a good bit of ground during the course of my stay there um, throughout, this, again, the city center. And there really was no public uh, presentation about Davis Cup. I didn't see billboards. There weren't uh, uh, trucks going around blaring about Davis Cup. Um, there is the Spanish sporting newspaper, Marco, which was covering it um, very closely, but you're not aware of that on the street. There were no there were no adverts for Marca and their stories about Davis Cup. Um, so that was really surprising. I rode the Metro back and forth from uh, Callao, the subway stop in the center of town, out to Cajamarca, um, and there's nothing, there was nothing in the subway about it. Now, not every subway, you know, is filled with adverts. Um, they are in New York or London. They, they certainly they can be here in Philadelphia, but um, they're not in Madrid. But there were adverts at, at the stops. And with, to the, with the exception of tennis players' names uh, on the uh, wall at the top um, – Throughout parts of each subway stop, there was nothing about Davis Cup. And 
The odd thing, again, as it mentioned in that intro article, was that their names were there, but the word Davis Cup wasn't there, the Rakuten, the title sponsor wasn't there. There was nothing telling you why these names were up with an icon of the player's country's flag. So it was very odd. When I got to the uh, metro stop, the subway stop for the Kahimaika, um, there was a small sign the second or third day I was, well, there was a sign there the first day, a directional sign that was maybe two feet by three feet in size, more or less, and maybe a little bit larger on a tripod on the floor with an arrow in the general direction of the Kahimaika. And that was it. There was nothing on the street. It's maybe a five minute walk uh, directing you down the street. I basically knew where to go because that's where all the crowds were going. Um, and once there, uh, there, there certainly was plenty of signage inside. Um, but I was kind of surprised by the, the, what, what the, was presented on the concourse, um, which we can come back to. Um, as well, in terms of the city, one of the things that uh, has not been covered a whole lot that I've seen outside of this was that <clears throat> with the scheduling thing that if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably heard about it, how late some of the matches ran, and we can discuss that. Um, the subway closes at one o'clock in the morning. And so if you wanted to stay for a match that was going to go past one, and there were quite a few, uh, you were pretty much making a commitment to getting home some other way. And evidently, from my friend, uh, Paolo, who lives in Madrid, was telling me in the papers there were quite a few stories about the fact that there were extremely long waits when the matches were letting out late or when people were leaving late for uh, the buses. They were running a special bus um, or taxis or Uber, which is also in Madrid. Um, there was a bus um, that they were running, especially for the tournament, that took you to uh, Legazpi, which is another metro stop, well short of where I needed to go. Um, but there, were no, there was no signage about this extra special bus that was running until, I think, an hour after the last match. So in terms of communication, it kind of followed up on general lack of marketing throughout the city. So in that respect, I was underwhelmed. And I, I would say, while it's easy to come in and see something like this and make all the negative criticisms, um, uh, it just seemed surprising that with all the money that Cosmos is throwing at the ITF for this event, <clears throat> that so, so many things like this that seem so basic uh, weren't addressed better. That would be my overall impression. I was underwhelmed, underwhelmed by the marketing on site. Well, and, and just touching on that last point, I mean, in terms of the logistics, I mean, I, 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 I'm not really sure what people in Madrid or people with the ITF felt in terms of the length of these different uh, ties. Uh, how, how much uh, were, have people been caught off guard by the, some of the late finishes? I mean, were, were these things expected or, or not? I mean, what, I mean, obviously, a lot of people you know, didn't really know what to expect, but did you catch a sense from anybody, either your friends in Madrid, people that you talked to, uh, how, how caught off guard was everybody that there were some really late finishes this week? Um, everybody was caught off guard, um, as evidenced by the fact that they announced, I think today is Friday, I think they announced at the 
end of the day yesterday. They were moving the start times back half an hour. Not that I think that was going to make a very big difference. They also adjusted the time uh, between matches from uh, they, there was a statement about that they had had 20 minutes between matches, but I was there and they announced 25 minutes for the next match when one had ended. Um, and they made it 10. Um, there are, um, uh, uh, business concerns for that. The various vendors, food, beverage, et cetera, want people to come out from the stands in order to spend money in the concourse. Um, so there's some pressure to, to have dead time between matches, but of course, when the match when the matches start running late, when it's 10.30 at night or later, and you get told that the next match is not going to be on for 25 minutes, um, it, it's not much of an incentive. It, it's, it's a disincentive, let's say, for staying. I'll also say, by the way, that my comments about marketing in the city, I'm sensitive to the fact that I'm coming from America where there's maybe a, a hyper-commercialization or consumerist attitude about these things. And so I, I need to be careful that I don't look at it just from that perspective, clearly not in America. Um, you know, it, this is not happening in America. However, I, I can compare it to London to having been at the O2, um, uh, you know, a number of times for the ATP finals. And I have to tell you that, you know, the, the news about the tennis is pretty much all around London. Of course, the tabloids are all covering it to one degree or another. Not as much as Wimbledon, but they're covering it. The tube stop at the O2 is just littered with um, pictures. And if you recall, we actually ran one uh, last year at TennisAccent.com with um, these huge pictures of Djokovic at the tube stop. And every advert on the wall as you go up the escalator, which is probably... 70 feet in length, you know, vertically, something like that. And there's a, uh, a, a, a two by three poster every four or five feet along that run going both up and down. Every poster at that tube stop was Lacoste and Djokovic. I mean, it's just huge. Um, so I'm comparing it to that. I, I know when you go to Wimbledon, I haven't been there in a long time, but you're very much aware of Wimbledon going on. Admittedly, it's a bigger event. I have to imagine it's the same thing at Roland Garros. Um, I was at the Australian. You're very aware of the Australian. Banners throughout town, et cetera, et cetera. Larger events, admittedly. But this is a big event. Cosmos is investing, if I remember correctly. The, the deal is $3 billion over 25 years. It's a lot of money. I, I would have expected um, a much greater presence in the city and better coordination for all those things, as well as, by the way, I will get in, a, I have a number of small nits to pick. Um, I can't imagine what they paid a consulting firm for in terms of various marketing phrases, but if they paid somebody to come up with the line, the World Cup of Tennis, where they have to promote our sport by referencing another sport, and they actually paid somebody for that money, I, they could probably spend half as much with me, and even though I'm not a professional, end up with something that at least highlighted what is special about tennis rather than referring it, making a reference to it, football or soccer. Um, in terms of the late finishes, nobody really expected it. And one thing that I haven't seen made comment about, which I think is very pertinent to this, is one of the problems that was inherent in this whole formula that they came up with. And that is they have 18 teams. 
There are a lot of matches that have to be played. There are not going to be very many facilities that provide them with a number of indoor courts available, to say nothing of practice courts, for that many players. One of the reasons that these late, well, there are basically two reasons why these late finishes started or, or occurred. The first is that on three courts, they start at 11 o'clock. I can't swear to all of the big four tournaments or the Masters or Premier events on the WTA side, but generally speaking, the players don't like to start before 11 a.m. So the early morning match, the morning matches, the morning ties for the Davis Cup started at 11. At the back end, they started at 6 o'clock. The original time was 6 o'clock. And they can't really start those earlier because from the point of view of ticket sales, they need to be late enough that people can finish work and then come out and see evening matches. Even if they can't be there right at six, they want to be able to come in just after the start time. They might be able to take off work early if they wouldn't ordinarily be able to be there at six in order to be there. But it can't really be before six o'clock. So as a result, you had three matches that had to fit in between 11 a.m. if they started immediately on time. And 6 p.m. if they were done and off the court and the new crowd came in for the evening sessions, which clearly, as we've seen, wasn't enough time when you have three matches that have to be played, even when they're two of three, even when there's a breaker in the third set. So the real problem here, as much as there is a discussion about what the start times are, those are probably pretty close to fixed points. You notice they only moved them by half an hour, which was not really going to change anything. That would have meant that the American, uh, the, the USA versus Italian doubles, for instance, would have gotten off the court, I think, at 3.34 in the morning instead of 4.04 for the sake of 30 minutes. Um, what they really need are more courts. They need to be able to run their 11 a.m. ties on one set of courts and at least two of the three evening ties, assuming they keep the same format, on separate courts for the, for the nighttime session. So... No, nobody expected that. Um, they didn't have a whole lot of leeway in terms of what they could change. Um, in terms of the firm hard points of the logistics, they also had, of course, an issue with tickets. It, you couldn't very well tell somebody who had a ticket for 6 p.m. that you were moving the start time to 4 p.m. and expect them to be happy about the fact that they now had to be there two hours earlier in order to maximize the value of their ticket. Um, right. We'll, so, we'll talk more. We'll talk more about the format in, in just yeah. a bit, and get yeah. your recommendations on what the, what the event can do uh, sure. for, for next year. But sure. for, before that, just want to talk about uh, obviously one of the big topics: the crowds, and 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 not partly the size, partly the enthusiasm. How much did the old Davis Cup atmosphere and electricity carry over to this, if at all? How how much do you think? this event retained uh, what used to exist, and how much did this new event fail to, to, to retain that? I don't think it failed to, re I, I, I think it succeeded, I, I think it succeeded completely. The crowds that were there were as into it as I've seen at pretty much, I've been to a few Davis Cup ties, not a lot. Um, they were completely enthusiastic. The Belgians were just crazy on, on the, the bus on the, on the Metro on the way out, you know, guys in costume with their heads painted. The uh, Spaniards, on, when I attended the Spain-Russia tie on Tuesday night, there was a five or six-piece orchestra in the audience. 
that was going full blast. It was complete Davis Cup fervor, as you would see anyplace else. The obstacle to its being full on was that not every tie was attended by very many people. When I was at Japan, France, Tuesday, it was an 11 a.m. tie. I don't know if there were 500 people in the stadium. And there were 75 or 100 vocal and fervent Japanese supporters. But there's just no way that that few people, it was in Stadium 2, um, which holds, and memory tells me it's something like 6,000, I'm not sure. But there's no way that that number of people can create a whole lot of noise or momentum for a team in a space of that size. The rest were predominantly, were almost all French supporters, and they were very vocal. The singing of the Marseillaise was stirring. Um, it was, it, it, you know, uh, uh, full voice on everybody's part. But as uh, Pierre Hubert commented, uh, it was the first time at a Davis Cup tie where he actually could hear himself singing La Marseillaise. In the past, it had always been drowned out by the crowds. I think he uh, replied that to a question by Matt Roberts from the Tennis Podcast in the press conference. So um, it clearly was was tampered down, tamped down, I should say, by the rather sparse attendance. Um, evidently today, from following the news, the Argentinians were out in force in the tie versus Spain, which, as you probably know, went to the third set. In the, in the doubles um, with, the, with the Spaniards winning. Um, but the Argentinians are probably the world's leaders are close to it in traveling at, to any part of the globe in order to support their, their teams. The, um, you know, I, I walked through the lobby at one point and a bunch of Chileans started uh, chanting a, a support tune for their team and, and others they didn't know in the crowd chimed in. But I mean, there just aren't that many Chileans. There, there was a fairly strong Canadian contingent, but they're evidently, from what I understand from speaking to an American I met in the concourse, fair number of Canadians working in Madrid. So, I, I think Davis Cup atmosphere was definitely there, it, but it suffers from there not being enough people attending, other than the Spaniards, and of course it's happening in Madrid, and they have Rafa. So, that's a lot of it. Sure. All right. I, we could we could get to the format if you want. I mean, you said you had some nits to pick, so let's let's pick <laughs> and start um, start anywhere you'd like. Well, I, I I so the nits to pick some some of which have been commented on, some of which I think um, are a little bit more um, uh, foundational. So the, the app, for instance, there's been a lot of complaint about the app. Um, my comments about that are this: first of all. I'm a little concerned about the fact that there isn't even a separate app from the ITF Davis Cup site. I'm not sure why control over information about an ITF event got handed to Cosmos. Um, If you're trying to truly expand the game and expand the reach of Davis Cup's interest, having two sites two websites for to, to disseminate Davis Cup information is unnecessarily confusing. I don't see how it makes it simpler for people. Um, and it suggests the Cosmos is really in control of this, which means that 
this sport is subject to their commercial agenda, which is not necessarily parallel or in sync with, um, I won't say amateur, but let's say the, the sports governing body's agenda on all things. So that's a little worrisome. It also, I, I'm also a little worried, such as it is, um, that there were so many pretty fundamental things missed by Cosmos in this. I, I talked about the, the, the transportation logistics, the poor signage, the, um, the, the app, which is, these are things that are just easily addressed in, in the lead up. They've been planning this now for um, the better part of a year. And if they're not spending money on doing this properly, it doesn't bode well for their other decision-making processes. It doesn't mean that they can't learn from their mistakes. And by the way, the, my, my nitpicking is not because I want to see this fail, quite, quite the contrary. But we only have their output there's, uh, by which to judge them. You know, it, it, we can judge, the, we can guess as to their motivations or, or their intentions, but the real proof here is in the pudding. And there are just so many places where it wouldn't have taken very much for them to have sorted these things out before the doors were ever opened. On the concourse, um, when we were waiting on Wednesday night for the uh, Germany-Argentina uh, match, I mean, uh, Germany, it, was, it wasn't Germany-Argentina, but... Um, uh, to finish, Germany and Ecuador, to, to finish in any event, it started two hours late. I didn't get into the stadium until eight o'clock and it was due to get in at six. S there are no screens on the concourse to show you what's going on, on on the courts on the inside. Now, those those screens exist at the O2. They exist at the U.S. Open. They existed at the Australian. I have to believe they exist at other tournaments as well. It doesn't take a whole lot of homework to find out what are the standards in the public spaces at these other events. Nobody did that here. And in this case, um, in Madrid this week, it was cold. The Calle is, the three stadiums are all indoors, although Stadium 2 is still exposed to the outdoor uh, temperature more. Uh, Calle itself is in, entirely enclosed, and so it's more temperature controlled. But as we're waiting for this tie to start, two hours late, it was 45 degrees outside and raining. And you're undercover in the concourse and there are steel perforated walls surrounding it so that people can't just walk in. But you're otherwise outdoors. And it was freezing. I mean, it was cold. People were miserable. Um, you know, coats and scarves on. Uh, they had radiant heaters and you see people lining up. Like I've got pictures of people standing in lines underneath the radiant heaters just to try and catch some heat. You couldn't, and you couldn't buy a ticket to go into those courts. Even if you wanted to go into one of those courts early and pay a full boat price to only see the doubles so you could get inside where it was warm and at least see some tennis, once the tie started, they weren't selling any tickets. So those are kind of my primary nits. I, I think there were other things. I think in terms of marketing and merchandising, there were two official stores inside the concourse. Um at the O2, at the U.S. Open, at the Australian, there are you know whole stores devoted to it. You couldn't handle the merchandise. It was all behind a counter. If you wanted to see a shirt or the towel or a hat, you had to ask somebody to hand it to you. And if they were filled to capacity for all the, the, the matches, I think the total capacity was going to be somewhere around 20,000 people, if not slightly more. So if they really were 
in demand, those things, then it was going to be difficult for them to even sell them and get them out. And again, one of the ways that you promote something like this is that six months later, somebody sees somebody at their club wearing a Davis Cup, sh Davis Cup shirt from Madrid, and it starts this conversation, and they want a T-shirt, and they want to go there. And as well, there were no T-shirts being sold if you wanted to support the Americans or you wanted to support the Serbians. There was no team clothing being sold. There was nothing like that. So are they huge things? No, they're not. I, uh, but I do think they speak to the uh, underlying competence as demonstrated so far by Cosmos in running this. Um, as in terms of the app, I will also say that not only did they have a separate app, but it was riddled with glitches. They had an update actually during the middle of the week. You, could, you can't get results easily from it. And there's no summary of what's going on. In today's digital amongst in today's digital prowess that's available it's hard to believe that there can't be a way on their website or their app for there to be a real-time tally of what everybody's standings are and where all the teams are going to go if you have 18 teams there and all the various mathematical permutations that were possible which would challenge anybody to do in their head or keep on their own seems to me it would be very relatively easy for that to be done by computer and to be visible so that you knew what was going on. And as an example of that, I will tell you that when the Americans took the court for the doubles, they, they started with the understanding that if they took the doubles, they had a chance to come through. And during the match, or it's early on in the match, they realized that that was not the case. And they still all played their hearts out. Um, and, and great credit to them for doing that. But even they didn't know what was going on in terms of the scoring. I think that's pretty weak. They're my nits, my big ones. Okay, now let's talk about the format. Uh, final, final part of our conversation here. Um, the, you know, so the eighteen teams. You mentioned that that obviously sticks out. If you had a chance to remake the format for this event, what would you do? That, that's a big question to which I haven't given a whole lot of thought. It's a complicated one. Um, I am sorry that there is no home that that. that Home and away has been um, devalued to such a great degree. Um, fortunately, today, um, we're not going, or tomorrow, I should say, we're not going to find out just how much it's been devalued because you have to ask the question. One has to ask the question. If Spain had not come through today against Argentina, so that in the semifinals, there was no home team, right? We'd have Argentina, Great Britain, France, right? I think, and Canada. We have no Russia and Canada. I'm sorry? Russia and Canada. Russia and Canada. I'm sorry. Yes, Russia and Canada. Right? We would have no home team in the semifinals. And it, it would have been, I think, a sad demonstration of the weakness of the format that you were playing and there was no home team. I don't think the stands would be full. And you, one has to believe that the primary source of revenue here is going to be television. The, the, the snafu with television coverage this year notwithstanding. Cosmos has to be banking on television. It's simply not, it's clearly not going to be ticket sales, even if they filled the place. So how television is going to be successful with stadia that do not have filled stands is just beyond me. N nobody thinks that's a good look. We already have that conversation in tennis about early round matches at the, the more rank and file tournaments. So I, I think that's going to be an issue. I, I'm sorry that home and away has been devalued. Um, I am uh, offended, 
not that my offense strike shakes the world, but I'm offended at the idea that there are two countries that are invited. It seems to me that one of the great things about sport is that it's a meritocracy. That's one reason why we're so upset by cheating. Um, and to all of a sudden have two teams that are invited who haven't earned their way in seems to me contrary to everything that we hold up as being valuable in sport or so many of the things that we hold up as being valuable in sport. Um, I understand what the commercial concerns are. They want to be able to bring in a superstar uh, whose team might otherwise not have um, qualified, but it, it runs counter to sport. And I don't know of another sport that, that does that. And that could be my lack of knowledge, but I don't know of one. Um, there was a suggestion that I saw from somebody, and I'm sorry I can't credit it, that the quarterfinals or the round robin groups actually be played in different cities. That instead, perhaps they do four groups of three, and that those groups all take place in different cities around the globe earlier. We now have four cities being involved rather than just one. And that the teams coming out of those four round robins meet for semifinals in one city. Um, that to me seems a, a reasonable compromise between the two, um, between the old format and the new. Whether or not it's going to draw more people into tennis who aren't already involved in tennis, I can't say. But what I do know that it will succeed at is it will bring tennis to more people. I don't believe that the secret to expanding tennis's reach into the casual fan is can be done exclusively by television. People get jazzed when they see a sport live. doesn't matter what the sport is. And they get jazzed by most things, theater, music. Those things all translate much more meaningfully when you see them live. And we're reducing the number of cities with this format that get to see professional tennis. And when you combine that with the willingness of fans to support their country, if it's reasonably easy. Uh, there's still money involved, there's still time involved, but reasonably easy, I think, is shown by the fact that that DC vibe was still so strong um, in Madrid. Uh, but the, the hurdle for everyone to get there and express that enthusiasm was too high, certainly this year, for that to happen. By spreading out the round-robin groups around the world, we now have four cities that are involved. Um, we're going to have four hometown teams, uh, you know, uh, demonstrating to their, to their uh, hometown fans, their tennis. And, and I think we then start to really talk about expanding tennis's reach to the population. And then perhaps um, the final city, whether, whether the final city has a hometown team or not, becomes less of an issue. I mean, really, we know that next year it's going to be held in Madrid. Um, hopefully, as Spain qualifies by virtue of being, by, by virtue of having come through this year. Um, but when are they going to announce where the finals are going to be held in 2021? Will they know for a fact that wherever they hold it, that that country's team will have made it through? Um, is that possible? Um, and how can they protect against that going forwards? Really, what it, to a great degree, what this means is that what are the odds of Ecuador ever hosting the Rakuten Davis Cup finals week, the way it's currently structured? I don't think they're very great. You spread some of it out, however, and all of a sudden we're bringing tennis to places where professional tennis is otherwise not happening. And I think that's a plus. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how Cosmos uh, changes and adjusts from year one 
to year two. That That's definitely going to be an indication of how serious Cosmos is about making this event work. And we're going to be here. And, and, and who knows, Skip, we might have you on to reevaluate uh, this new iteration of Davis Cup in 2020. But we thank you for reviewing the 2019 edition with us and going over some of the challenges and, and uh, facing the event and also the observations you gleaned from your time on site in Madrid. And so I want to remind our listeners uh, that you can go to tennisaccent.com to read Skip Schwartzman's initial commentary on uh, Davis, the Davis Cup finals and additional commentary that he's going to post uh, either over the weekend or, or early next week, uh, or early this week, I should say, as, as you listen to us. Uh, so look at tennisaccent.com for more from Skip Schwartzman. Uh, and uh, stay tuned for you know his next set of observations. You never know where he's going to pop up at a global tennis tournament of significance. Skip Schwartzman, thank you for joining us on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Thanks a lot, Matt. Talk to you soon.